You're listening to the Brand Builders Podcast with your hosts, Scott Dunstan and Brian Young. Welcome to another episode of the award-winning Brand Builders Podcast powered by the Dunstan Group. My name is Brian Young, and we are here with the president of the Dunstan Group, Scott Dunstan. And we are here with a friend, a client, and somebody that's doing amazing work here in the Charlotte area, Ward Blanchard from the Blanchard Institute. And, and we're here to talk about a very serious topic. And, um, and I want everybody to, to really listen to this podcast and take something from it and, and help your community. But no matter who we are or where we come from, we all know at least one person with a substance abuse problem. It can be alcohol, street drugs, prescription drugs, you name it. Uh, we're seeing uh, there's a big spike in opioid addictions and deaths in the last five years. And the latest numbers from drug abuse gov says that more than 23 million Americans suffered addiction to alcohol, marijuana, or prescription drugs in 2017. Now, we also know from those same government statistics that only two and a half million people are getting proper treatment for those addiction. That's a huge gap that needs to be fixed. And our guest on the Brand Builders podcast today is one person in Charlotte doing something about that. Ward Blanchard founded the Blanchard Institute Substance Abuse Treatment Center in Charlotte and is here to give us some insight not only into his center's important work, but the history of Ward. And we are so excited to learn more about this because it is a problem. It needs to be talked about. And you are the right person to bring it to light. So thank you, Ward, for joining us on the Brand Butters Podcast. No, th- thank you, Brian. It's um, And Scott, it's for having me. It's uh, really a, a, a jump at the opportunity anytime to bring advocacy and, and information and shed light sort of on this uh, epidemic that sort of holds our nation hostage. And so, you know, knowledge and information is power. And so anytime I have an opportunity to have a platform just to share some and shed some light on this issue that uh, even if it just touches one person, that's, that's worth an immense amount of time. And, yeah. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. Hey, great introduction, Ward. This has been a long time coming. We're we're very thankful you're here. You're a friend. You're a great business leader. Uh, you're creating an avenue uh, for help that many, many people need. And I think you've been down this road before, uh, which has led you to create the Blanchard Institute and design an avenue for these folks. So we'd like to hear a little bit about how you got here mm-hmm. and where you're going. No, no, thank you, Scott. I think it's it is important, uh, you know, not only for the, you know, that listener to uh, uh, to have some empathy and some some understanding that uh, there are people walked in their shoes and that there is hope, but also when it comes to the conversation of of how we get our message out, I think it it helps people absorb that message when they understand the altruistic and authentic reasons of why we have our mission and why the Blanchard Institute exists. And, you know, that does date back to my own personal and family's experience that, you know, 15 years ago, uh, you know, I struggled with a substance abuse issue that uh, really developed out of a, a medical complication that we uh, that now that sort of is one of the drivers of this prescription drug uh, epidemic and the heroin epidemic. You can overwhelmingly all these people and all these situations that are struggling now started with a medical surgery or wisdom teeth pulled out or, you know, a shoulder surgery. And um, and so that sort of happened to me when I was, uh, you know, 18 and on my way to uh, to go to UNC Chapel Hill and to be a Tar Heel and had the world at my fingertips, you know, was diagnosed with an illness that, you know, out of nowhere, they gave me a, you know, a couple years to live and breathing out of a trach in an oxygen tank. And I experienced about, 
87 to 90 surgeries in a short period of time and was introduced to a significant amount of, of opiates. That was about at the time of the late 90s and early uh, 2000s where uh, the pharmaceutical company was marketing the OxyContin as not being addictive, where they had also uh, infiltrated sort of the healthcare system and established pain as the fifth vital sign, which in it. It's crazy that it even is the way it is, but, you know, it's the perfect intersection. And so, you know, this, uh, you know, pain medicine entered my life and I realized that it, you know, it took the physical pain away, but it also took the emotional pain away. And, you know, I went off on a tear um, and just like, you know, substance use disorders always do it. It got worse and worse and worse. And, and my family just um, was very fortunate in Eastern North Carolina, as far as we had all the resources, as far as finding finance at our disposal, we were very grateful and blessed. And we still couldn't find appropriate healthcare resources to, to get me healthy again. We went through years of pain in trying to find uh, solutions and, and healthcare treatment at treatment center after treatment center, only to be um, experienced, uh, you know, not the best outcomes. And it wasn't until, you know, I, we were introduced uh, to, uh, to a man and to a center that, you know, really provide my family, some family system treatment support with a very evidence-based progressive way of doing it. And that took me out to California and, you know, 12, 13 years ago. And, um, I was able to get healthy and experience sort of, you know, the life of recovery and, and I knew from then, you know, that point on, I was very fortunate to experience that uh, because I knew what I felt like my purpose was, is, um, you know, I wanted to to learn those skills, to learn that uh, that treatment industry, to learn uh, the psychology of it. I wanted to really understand what happened to me, you know, to go from a, a high school kid that never drank, never did drugs, never smoked a cigarette, to all of a sudden experience a pretty severe substance use disorder uh, disease. You know, what happened to my brain? It very much was an illness and not a uh, characterological issue or a choice. And so I really wanted to be um, be in that world of human services and learn as much as I could in Southern California in that industry where you, it's really what I call the fertile crescent of progressive psychology at the time. And I was really blessed to have some opportunities to learn at places like the Betty Ford Center and um, some uh, really progressive thought leaders in the industry for about uh, 10 years and really focusing on family system type of treatment. And I always wanted to take what I learned and bring it back to the state of North Carolina. I'm a born and bred Tar Heel. And um, the people in this state are suffering from this disease. You know, North Carolina in 2017, we also had the second highest rate of overdose increase at any state in the country. And we have the highest rate rate of addiction to the lowest rate of available resources. And so, you know, why I do what I do, it is important that, uh, you know, people feel that because I, I also believe one of the things that I often tell, uh, whether it's colleagues or families that enter our office that, uh, you know, trying to understand the mission behind what we do is a, there's a C.S. Lewis quote that I use that, uh, you know, God, God whispers in our pleasure, 
speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. And, uh, you know, pain can be used as that motivator. And, you know, the pain that my family experienced and, and the fortunate opportunity we had to experience the healing of recovery, that really drives the Blanchard Institute admission is how can we give a platform uh, to really shed the light and provide that to as many individuals and families in this community and across the state as we can. So tell us, you know, that's an amazing story and, and we're so blessed that you're here and I'm so blessed that you're so passionate about helping people. I feel that it's starting to become a conversation that people aren't as uncomfortable with, which needs to happen, uh, whether that's from the top to the bottom. I felt like uh, as a 34 year old, if, if somebody was addicted to, to heroin or opioids, it was very hush hush. It was, oh, we don't want the family, we don't want the family name to be ruined. We're not going to let anyone know. And the reality is, is it's, it's affecting everybody no matter what the, uh, the, the drug is. Um, but tell us a little bit about, you know, a starting the Blanchard Institute, mm-hmm. you went into, you know, the, the passion behind it, but tell us, you know, when, about starting it. And then also what exactly is the Blanchard sure. Institute? No, ab- absolutely. I think um, so. I moved back to moved back to North Carolina from you know Southern California about five years ago, and uh, you know coming from uh, you know spending over a decade out in Southern California, you know Charlotte was the area that I wanted to to build my the home, and just uh, it was an area that I thought uh, was just bursting with energy, and um, it also had some family connections here. And so when I moved back to Charlotte. And started to really understand the available resources and take a, a look at uh, the available mental health and substance use disorder resources here in Charlotte. Even in a city full of a million people in the most progressive area of North Carolina, there wasn't one accredited dual diagnosis outpatient resource available to the people in this in the whole city. And so, you know, people often think that you see this, you see and hear about this uh, addiction pandemic now, because it's, it's now more than an epidemic, that there's available resources everywhere. And that's just not the case. And so uh, one of the things that we really wanted to do is also take our time and be intentional about creating a quality center. And so for the first year and a half uh, of my uh, residence here in Charlotte, I really uh, took an opportunity to to get to know the area, get to know the you know sort of key stakeholders in the community that um, that play a role in, in helping and providing those services because I think uh, the way that we're really going to make a difference is collaborating between community resources, law enforcement resources, healthcare resources. And so I wanted to be intentional about creating a quality center. It was not about creating this profit-driven machine that, you know, I then wanted to sell to some private equity firm five years from now. That was not at all what I had in mind. Our mission uh, was something larger than ourselves and really wanted to create an impact. And so I was very intentional about developing those relationships that, um, that still are what a part of the foundation of the Blanchard Institute today. And so uh, we were uh, started the Blanchard Institute. We just celebrated uh, two years of operations in uh, March of this uh, 2019. And the Blanchard Institute uh, 
uh, is what we hope to be is just a a mental health and substance use disorder and just behavioral condition resource for the community. And that's why it's really called the Institute is we're not just a treatment center. We are a, a platform for professionals in the community. We do a lot of continuing education events that we supply for free to the community. We do a lot of uh, family services that we uh, provide for free to the community. We also do, uh, in my mind, the best and most quality and comprehensive uh, mental health and substance use disorder treatment in the region. That's just one of the things that the Blanchard Institute does. But uh, as a whole and as a mission, we want to be the resource for anybody and everybody, professional, individuals, families that has any questions or concerns about anything mental health or substance use disorder related. I love that. And so it's, I have a 19 month old son and, um, I talk about this a lot. It's the one thing that keeps me up at night is, you know, one, one time having, you know, heroin or, or if he gets, you know, injured and then gets, you know, prescribed opioids, like that could ruin everything, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it terrifies me. And it's the one thing I'm like, you know, how, how am I going to be a great father and keep him away from that? You know, cause I felt like when I grew up, it was, it was beer and weed, mm-hmm. right? There was, it wasn't. Maybe a little bit of cocaine, honestly, but there yep. wasn't there wasn't anything that was running into to, to my high school. And now it's everywhere. It doesn't yep. matter where you come from, how much money you have, color of your skin. So when you're seeing that, I mean, mm-hmm. what are what are some of the the advice that you're giving not only parents, but mm-hmm. but people to make their kids aware of this and hopefully make the next generation not addicted? Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe and maybe that's a really tough question, you know? No, it, it is a very. It, but I'm so appreciative of you asking it and. The way you asked it is perfect. How do I get to be a great father? Well, let me first tell you, if your son ever struggles with with this disease, that has no bearing on you being a great father. Because if he developed cancer, you would not think that's because of your not being a great father. And that way that we ask that question is exactly the stigma that the Blanchard Institute tries to fight against. That somehow, because of your child or your loved one or your spouse develops this disease, that that is somehow some reflection on the family's quality of being a parent, quality of being a spouse. And that's a stigma that I actually call the casserole syndrome. It's a, it's called the casserole syndrome. And what I mean by that is when I was 18 years old, growing up in Roanoke Island, that small town of Mania, and all of a sudden on August the 13th, Friday of 1999, I was diagnosed with this autoimmune disease. Everybody in Manio came and gave my my parents casseroles. As I was going to the Mayo <laughs> Clinic, they filled my refrigerator full of casseroles. I can smell it to this day. It stings my nostrils. It's baked tetrazzini. <laughs> I, can almost, I can almost taste it as I'm talking about it. But that's what communities do, right? They, they, and so fortunately, when I made it through that medical disease, and a few years later, when I was dying of the disease of addiction, how many casseroles do you think were in my refrigerator? None. None. And it's because that that's the way that we look at it, that somehow it's a reflection on what did you do to that child? What could I have done better? What as a parent that I, I should have, could have been a better father. I, and that is actually part of the stigma, stigma that drives this disease further into the closet. And what we want to do is with knowledge and information that is combating a lot of the misinformation that's out there is to say, Hey, if you, if your child developed 
cancer or some other autoimmune disease, you wouldn't look at it as a reflection on your parenting because it's not nowadays, it's not just the opiates that they get introduced to. What I tell families these days is there's no safe experimentation is it's not like 20 or 30 years ago where, you know, those of us as unhealthy as it was, we would steal a six pack of Budweiser or Strawberry Spoons Farm and go out and get a little buzz on and go on into school or whatever, as unhealthy as that was. Today, these kids at the drop of their uh, fingertips have access to synthetic benzodiazepines, synthetic opiates, fentanyl, and one drop of that in a vape handed off to the wrong person, unsuspecting person. And you, and that's how you read all these stories about a kid took a hit off a vape that he may have thought was tobacco and it had something else in it and he's in a coma the next day. And so there's no safe experimentation. And with the, with the marijuana component, these aren't the joints of 20, 30 years ago of 10% THC. When you're talking about purity levels of 90, 95, 98% THC, it has profound impact, not only on adults' brains, but if you think about adolescents and young adults with their blank brains that aren't uh, that aren't fully matured or developed, has significant impact on their uh, brain capabilities, and that's why we see such a rise in adolescent and young adult mental health in substance abuse issues is because the, the environment. There's no safe experimentation anymore. And so to be a great parent, what I say has nothing to do with whether they develop this disease. Being a great parent is about staying connected and involved in your ch child's life. That was a great answer. Yeah. I, I don't even know how to follow up with that, to be honest. But I, I, you can see the passion that comes out of your voice, and it's amazing. Um, I really do appreciate you telling the story. And, and I want to jump into a little bit more here. You, you talk about family. You talk about support networks. You know, although it might not be a direct reflection, what are things that people can do? You know, what are signs? What are not only I mean, obviously getting in touch with people in the Blanchard Institute. That's what you've been able to create a path to get away from addiction. But, you know, what are some of the signs and what can we do as a community to not only just tackle this, but like, how can we stop it? Mm hmm. No, uh, thank you, because I get called all the time now, whether it's coming into s schools or actually working with CMPD. It's like, how do we how do we actually stop or head off this epidemic? And they often want to come into me and say, identify strategies of how do we identify strategies that somebody has this oncoming mental health or addiction issue? I said, we'll do that. And that will help with the short term. But if you want to ask for the long term, the solution is in the system. The solution is in the family system. And what I mean by that is, and this is above every disease lecture I do, this is what I start with. That if we look at our community as a whole, just our nation's community, and we wonder why these young adults, these adolescents are struggling. Well, it's not the 11 or 12 or 13 year old fault. It's the adults that are raising them. Because if we set the epidemic on the shelf for a minute, we are the most obese, addicted, medicated, in debt adult society ever. And all of those are medicators in ways that we escape. We use something external to escape something internal. And so we wonder why we're raising a generation that escapes into technology, that escapes into substances. It's because the adults and the parents that are supposed to be in the home are not only not involved, but they're displaying behaviors of avoidance. And so the next thing that I'd say is not only that, is the inability for us to communicate. How many of you guys, even I, myself included, when we have a, a, 
an uncomfortable conversation, we want to send a novella over text. I mean, we want to type it out and press send. And that is not the way we communicate. I mean, I've seen, all of us have even seen pictures where there's a Christmas tree and everybody around the family has their screens up. <laughs> or what I ask in a family is, how many of you guys text your family member across the hall or in the same house or even across the dinner table because we don't have that connection anymore. We've lost the ability to have those crucial conversations from emotionally connected places. And so we're the most connected, disconnected society ever. And then, and that, that provides the avenue for uh, children and even spouses and adults to be able to be uncomfortable and reach out for help and to feel safe uh, in communicating, you know, some of their uh, struggles. Because if you're doing it over text, that's not an intimate, that intimate you see, that intimate way of communicating. It's just not happening. And then if you want to act on a larger whole, our community... Well, communities are struggling because, you know, Scott, you and I go back to Eastern North Carolina where we were raised with front porches and neighborhoods and connection within the community. And now our society has gotten to where exhaustion is a status symbol. And I'm the same way. When I get home after hard days of work, I want to pull down the drive, pull on my driveway, open the garage, get in there, shut down. Because hell, if I want to say hey to the neighbor walking his dog, because I just don't want to do that small, small talk crap. It's like we've gotten to where even community connection is not really available anymore. You couple that with uh, a healthcare system that is designed, you know, there's 9,000 billing codes within the healthcare system. All of those are devoted to sick and disease. Not one is devoted to health and wellness. And so we've got a healthcare system that's designed for acute disease. But when it comes to behavioral health, wellness, recovery, our healthcare system is uh, it's the la actually not the last place that knows what to do with this. So one of the things that I'm able to do is part of what we do is continue medical education events for Novant and, and Atrium. And I've talked in front of 400 psychiatrists and internists and said, how many of you have had one week's worth of training on addiction? And nobody raises their hand. So let me remind you that this is the same disease that four years ago, the United States Surgeon General, our number one doctor, said we were in the worst public health care crisis our country had ever seen. And our doctors in today's healthcare system have no idea how to handle it. And so that that in itself uh, creates a system that there's not going to be one easy answer to how we stop this. But I can tell you it starts with a collective effort of collaboration between treatment resources, community resources, law enforcement, schools, prevention. And on top of that, it starts with knowledge and information going out there to really give this platform that this is a disease. There is a lot of hope, a lot of help, um, and beat back that stigma that this is not a characterological issue, but just a healthcare disease, that these aren't bad people trying to get good, just sick people that need treatment. Can you talk a little bit about how the insurance companies view yes, this yes. issue? So insurance companies, and this is one of the things that is difficult uh, a lot of time for anybody to understand because any sort of healthcare issue, insurance adds a confusing component to it. Insurance companies operate on the basis of two words, medical necessity. And so if you have a broken leg, it's in showing x-ray, it's easy to show here's a broken leg. It's medically necessary to have that surgery. Well, when you're talking about behavioral health and somebody's got trauma, anxiety, 
you know, struggling with sobriety, mm. uh, you know, bipolar, that is far more subjective. That's far more clinical, mm. but they still operate on medical necessity. Mm. And so insurance companies, mm. the unfortunate reality is they do not make this easy. They make it actually uh, it, driven by things that are more medical and less clinical. And they only pay for the acute short term. Because once you get out of the three to five day crisis of something like a an overdose or a detox, or they will drop coverage. And the financial exposure is left up to the family. And even one layer more is we know the evidence-based way to treat this disease is by family system support. And so if insurance companies barely pay for the identified patient's treatment, there's no way they're paying for the family services treatment. That's why the Blanchard Institute, we're not willing to accept that our clinical program is going to be driven by an insurance company. That's why the family services we provide are all free and open to the community. I love that. I think just from a, you know, anybody that is actually listening to this, if there's somebody that is battling addiction, what is your advice? Obviously, we would like for them to get in touch with the Blanchard Institute to see how you can help. Tell me what what would be your advice for somebody that is battling addiction right now that maybe doesn't know they're battling it or they are and they do know it. They just don't know where to go. I would say, and this message would go out to not only people that think they may be struggling with a, a substance use disorder or a mental illness, or if you are a family member or a loved one of somebody that is, you even think maybe struggling with it. The first thing that I'd like to uh, tell you is you don't have to hit rock bottom. Uh, you don't have to wait until this enormous amount of pain. There is immediate help. There is immediate resources. There is a lot of hope in uh in this disease and i would encourage them to to reach out you can uh, you know you know find us on on the web or on our phone number and if we're not the resource we are just a platform to get you to the appropriate resource and so by no means is this a a uh, a challenge for action of a business because we get we just want to be a resource to the entire community i would say you know 50 to 60% of our calls are just community uh people calling us and saying, this is what's going on. Where would you recommend? And uh, the majority of my job and my time is actually spent connecting others out in the community with the appropriate resources. So a lot of times, because of the stigmas we face, you know, this is the disease that everybody's been touched by, but nobody wants to bring it out into the light. And so the first thing I'd say is I'd, I'd normalize and say, you're not alone. Millions and millions, far more than 23 Ameri million Americans struggle with this disease. Those are the only reported cases. I would say it's more like 80 to 100 million suffer from some form of substance use disorder or substance misuse. And so you're not alone. There is a lot of hope and help. This is not a characterological issue. We understand this is not a choice. And so, you know, we're just here not only to provide you relief, because one thing I can tell you is no matter what uh, their decisions look like, if you're in there with a loved one who is really in the grips of a substance use disorder, you may think that they lack uh, 
understanding of consequences and lack appreciation. And they don't. That's the, the way that looks is just an effect is a result of their brain not working properly. But make no mistake, they are in an enormous amount of pain. Nobody wakes up. And when I was going through manual high school, it says, you know what, Scott, I really hope up, hope I grow up to be a drug addict. Nobody wakes up like that. And so, uh, you know, having some empathy uh, with understanding that this is a disease um, and it is uncomfortable and it is difficult. But there is a tremendous amount of hope. I mean, that for people that understand it, because some of the, the two most powerful words you can tell somebody when they're struggling with this is me too. Me too. And, you know, we understand and we want to provide that that element of safety and comfort and non-judgment and just connect people to the appropriate resources. I love that. Love that. Yeah. You know, Ward, before we, we, um, we close up here, what is the best way for people to reach out, um, to get in contact with the Blanchard Institute and, and whether to get help, whether to get help for a family member or even if, you know, they want to support the Blanchard Institute. Yep. No, absolutely. Thank you for that. It's uh, the best way you can. We are online with, uh, you know, uh, the Blanchard Institute.com. We get um, we get web forms. People contact us through there all the time that those contact forms, when they press it, actually go to all the executives. So everybody who who presses that and then fills that out, I see that. And so I see it every day. It's not something that goes into a bin that we check once a week. I see it daily of people who are reaching out for any form of help. You know, not only that, I'd strongly recommend calling our, just calling our front desk, you know, at 704-288-1097. And I even go one step further that my personal cell phone is on all my business cards because I'm well aware this disease does not operate on a Monday through Friday, nine to five schedule. And people call my cell phone all the time. It's 252-216-9374. Anybody and everybody is welcome to call that number and say, hey, this is what's going on. I need help. And I uh, do my best to connect them with the appropriate resources. If we can help them out, great. If there's other resources, there's wonderful other resources around that we have partnerships with. And the the least of all, especially if it's a family member, we have regular and consistent free and professionally led family services every week that people can come into. And there's no commitment. There's no financial strings. There's there's nobody doing a sales pitch. It's just an empathetic and safe place for people come and realize they're not alone. I love it. Well, Ward, you know, awesome. yeah, closing out, we always ask everybody to like and share, you know, the podcast and, and, and comment. But this is important. You know, definitely share this with anybody uh, that might be battling addiction. Please share this on all platforms. Let's get this message out there. Thank you so much for opening up and telling your story, not only personally, but now that how that's driven you into the Blanchard Institute. Um, I love that people are starting to have those those conversations. And that's why we started this podcast, to be able to have that conversation and get into um, you know, things that people are passionate about. And it's something that I think a lot of people are very proud of you for what you've done, what you've overcome, what you've been able to build. And I know it's just the beginning. Um, so we're so excited to to follow that journey. And we're so proud of you for what you've been able to do, Ward. Uh, and thank you so much for joining us and, and telling us your story on the Brand Butters podcast. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ward. Great yeah, job, buddy.
You've been listening to the Brand Builders Podcast, brought to you by the Dunstan Group with your host, Scott Dunstan and Brian Young. For branded merchandise and apparel that makes first impressions and ones that last, check out the Dunstan Group at dunstangroup.com.